Here's the title of the message. It's the truth that sets you free. John chapter 8, verse 31 and verse 32. That's what we're going to be uh, focusing in upon this morning. So here's what we've been saying the last couple of weeks. You guys, there was a conversation that Jesus had recorded in John chapter 18, a few hours before he was crucified, a conversation that he had with Pilate, who had ultimately sentenced him to be crucified. This conversation that Jesus had with Pilate, if you were to put it on the scales of like revelation and truth and weigh it, it would just be like off the charts, this exchange. What comes front and center is the very issue of truth. It's like, what is truth? Pilate asks that question. I mean, we have the scripture on the screen because we've been like hovering over it. Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, speaking of his humanity. For this cause I've come into this world, speaking of his deity. God came down, wrote himself in the script of life, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, well, what is truth? And then it seems like the conversation ends. It doesn't seem like it does. Pilate goes out to the crowd and says, initially, I find no fault in him. But Pilate asks the question, what is truth? Look, that's one of the most important questions you could ever ask. We need to all ask, in effect, just in your own heart this morning, ask that question. Just in your heart right now, like, what is truth? You know, is truth that Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States, or is that a fact of history? You know, what is truth? And we, we've been learning that truth is a person, it's the creator of the entire universe who's revealed himself. Truth is a plan in his son that is unfolding as everything is moving towards the reign of Jesus here on planet earth. And genuine followers of Jesus are citizens of that kingdom right now. So we're kind of from the future. And we noted that when Pilate asked this question, what is truth? You know, maybe he was sighing like, man, I don't know. Because in Greek Roman culture, there was no authoritative answer at that time. You know, so from Pilate, all the great philosophers, you know, had been on the scene, but, but they've, been, they've exhausted this question. And from it came no authoritative answer. So he could have said it with a sigh, like, oh man, I mean, what is truth, you know? And Jesus said, I've come to reveal the truth. It's like, I've come down. God has come to find us. He's written himself in the play of life. It could have been that he asked the question sneering, kind of mocking. Like, what is truth? You know, you know, yeah, you're going to tell me what the truth is. I don't really know how he asked the question, but I know this Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to be through me. And we just read it in John 8. If you continue in my word, you'll know the truth. The truth shall set you free. Look up here, you guys. Set you free? Obviously, we got to like study the passage in its context. What's the freedom being spoken of? What's the truth that sets one free? But in general, the idea is, look, one can be experiencing influences that minimize or pull down or degrade a life. And being set free carries the idea of living one's potential as God has actually purposed. Truth will not break us down. 
Truth enables us to live the potential that God has purposed for our lives. Can I hear a big amen to that? And here's the thing. Man, we talked about this, like, we got to go back to this conversation. This is this conversation that ended abruptly and relook at it. I mean, for our time, I mean, for our time, what is truth? There's such, such radical polarization today. Like, imagine this. Imagine... Imagine if you fell asleep in 1962 and you woke up in year 2020. So you were asleep for 58 years. Just imagine this, right? So you wake up, you know, you fell asleep in 62, you missed the Beatles. Okay, anyway, sorry. But you fell asleep, you wake up in 2020, and you're like, whoa, I mean, you know, I'm in infrastructure, but I recognize my country, recognize my city and stuff. But you're now being briefed, okay? You're being briefed by a friend about what our country looks like. Just last 58 years, you've been asleep, and now you've woken up. And, and your friend is saying, well, let me just tell you a few things. I mean, a lot of great things has taken place, and, and I don't even have time to give you total perspective, but I need to prepare you on a few things. I need to tell you about the cultural fabric and, and, and the moral fabric of our generation, and now, now, when I mention these things, I don't mention them in any disdainful way. I just want to float some facts out here. Are you guys with me on this? So it's like, okay, you woke up. So now you're going to get briefed. And one of the things you're going to be told is, hey, you know, um, I know this sounds so crazy, but marriage has been redefined. I mean, I know, like, we think marriage, male, female, right? But, you know, guys marry guys. What? I mean, that would just obviously, whoa. And you know, like the marijuana thing, like weed, <laughs> okay, that's like now legalized. Really? Yeah. Another thing is you just got to be aware of, you know, f- with your daughters and stuff and your wife that, um, I don't know, it's just like, you know, someone could wake up in our culture, someone could wake up and just, you know, biologically they're, they are what they are, male or female, but if they feel differently about who they are biologically, or whether they, you know, male just wants to associate with like and identify as a female, they could just go into the women's bathroom. So it's like, and the thing is, is that, are you kidding me? No, I'm telling you. It's like, walk into, you know, wife's using the restroom, just a male walks in there and stuff. It's like, that's just, that's just crazy. I know it's crazy. It is, it is crazy, you know, it is. And then not only that, but, and, and I hate to say this, but there's been like 61 million humans killed in the womb. From, from 62 to 61 million. In addition to that, it's hard to wrap your mind around this, but the majority of teens in America, the majority of teens are actually experiencing a full-blown addiction. They are addicted, like clinically considered addicted to what? To technology and to sensuality and to pornography. It's like, have we taken life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness too far? Are we legalizing our own destruction? And we started the year by identifying, because we live in such a polarized culture. Would you not agree with this? You know, you have the lid of civility taken off, and you see it politically, and, and it's, just, it's just like, but it, it's, it's like chaotic and confusing, and it's, and it's demoralizing, and, and yet at the same time, it's, it's actually revealing people's true colors, you know, politically or religiously or their worldview and things. And we just simply noted that 2020 is probably going to be a turbulent year. We have an election year. And I mean, just even what happened without getting into the details this last week. I mean, the polarization politically is off the charts, you know. 
between Republicans and Democrats? How many of you feel that out of curiosity? Could you raise your hand? Okay, the majority, I think, raise your hand. And the question that I want to ask is, hey, you know, between Republicans and Democrats, are you sure they're the only ones in the room? Because then they're really going at each other. I'll never forget March 3rd, 2015, when Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, stood before a joint session of Congress. I've told this story before, and he came to warn us and warn the world of an enemy of humanity, he said. And so he said, you know, Hitler believed in a superior race, but the Iranian regime believes in a superior faith. And they believe actually in a faith that brings a destruction before their savior, their Mahdi. So they want to see destruction and chaos. They, they, they believe in world domination. And, he, and he, he warned our country and the world, look, don't lower your guard with regard to Iran because they're an enemy of humanity. Here's the thing that we need to make sure we wake up and, and that is while the devil's not behind every bush, there is a devil. And there's spiritual warfare taking place. And, and it's like, it's not just Democrats and Republicans. And I'm just simplifying the argument here. There's someone else in the room. The real enemy is demonic influence that I'm concerned is playing us. So let us wake up and be aware. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Jesus said, watch this. If you continue in my word, you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And one of the, one of the things that sets you free is like, it's not just political, actually. It's not just political. There is a spiritual dynamic to our lives. And there are spiritual influences that influence ideas and influence individuals. So let us be careful that, you know, the demons are not demonizing everyone and we're just fighting each other and tearing each other down because there is one who wants to pull all of humanity down. Jesus said he's come to rob, kill, and destroy. Look, go back to chapter eight. Actually, you're still there. If you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. You know, we have to ask the question, what's really the word that Jesus is communicating in its context? Because to say that it means Leviticus 23 or Genesis 1 wouldn't be really immediate to context. And most immediate to context, if you just go back up to verse 28, and we have it up on the screen, Jesus has just said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Well, when He says here, when you lift up the Son of Man, it's a, lift up is a common idiom for crucifixion, when he's lifted up on the cross, son of man goes back to Daniel chapter seven, which is a vision of the king who comes from eternity past, God revealing himself. Jesus is, is giving a loaded idea here. He is saying, I am the king, promised king of Israel. Okay, continue in my word. I'm going to be lifted up. Okay, I'm gonna be lifted up on the cross, bridge the gap between God and man, on Passover, Nisan 14, and one in the crowd who's following him, like, continue in my word. Keep, keep continuing. You, you know, you thirst, come to me, I'll give you water that you'll never thirst of. Continue in my word. Keep following me. One is actually Nicodemus. That's why I read this scripture earlier, who follows Jesus all the way to crucifixion. He's part of the team, Joseph of Arimathea, the other, to bring Jesus down from the cross. 
but he was a secret follower of Jesus. So he was witness of Jesus giving his life on the cross, on Passover, bridging the gap between God and man. We mentioned this last week. The truth that sets us free, listen, the truth that sets us free, there's a God in heaven who paid a debt we could not pay ourselves outside of our lives being literally paying the debt of, of, in death. But he came to, to bear our sin on a cross. He paid the debt of our sin. In his resurrection, he's given us life to live above the power of sin and therefore experience the potential that God has created us to know. So watch, we made that point. So here's Nicodemus following him and he gets to the cross. The great truth is there's a God in heaven who bridged the gap between God and man and made a way for us to have relationship with him. Okay? And continuing with this idea of how truth sets us free, Let's get to the first point of this message. The gospel actually sets you free from the illusion and disillusionment of life. The illusion and disillusionment of life. Let's let's unpack that. Think context. Look, the conventional wisdom in first century Judaism was Messiah would bring freedom and justice, which would require actually a political ramification since Judea was under the thumb of Rome. And at the trial of Jesus, Pilate offered to release a prisoner. It was a custom during Passover. And he brought Jesus and he brought Barabbas, who the Bible says was an insurrectionist, probably one of the Sicarii. He was a murderer, okay? And he brought Jesus and Barabbas before the people. And the people cried for Barabbas. So they're thinking, hey, give us, give us Barabbas because to be frank with you, I mean, he embodies really our heart. We would love to be freed from the red coats, from being under the thumb of Rome. Okay? Well, listen, while it's true that the Messiah King of Israel will establish his kingdom on the earth of righteousness, peace, and justice. Can I hear a big amen to that? Okay, watch this. In order for that to take place, Jesus first came to destroy the darkness that is behind the darkness. So in other words, he first came to bring real transformation, real transformation to bring man in right relationship with God. And that is second coming, having brought man in right relationship with them, he rules and reign on planet earth. So watch this. Here's the point I want to make and bring it to our, our own lives. When you follow Jesus, you're actually delivered from the illusion that you can change man by legislating righteousness. It won't happen. So in other words, the common thinking of the day, common, not to every Jew that exists in the first century was, hey, the need is Messiah brings a political freedom to our lives. Ultimately, Jesus does reign on the earth. But the reality is in order to bring healing, At the core level, Jesus came to destroy the darkness that is behind the darkness. The core problem is a broken relationship with God. Brilliant. What a king he is. To really bring healing to mankind by bringing him in a right relationship with God. If we're thinking, man, if we just got our laws right, or, you know, we we were just free from the threat of terrorism or something, that that would inaugurate righteousness and justice on on planet earth, that is living in illusion. Are you guys tracking with me on this, right? Jesus said, you must be born again of the spirit. He said that to Nicodemus. 
you'll neither see nor enter in to the kingdom. The idea is, one idea is, you can't legislate righteousness. Laws are important, but the point is, is that laws do not fundamentally change a human being. Only the Lord can do that. And that, and the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? Now watch this. Fast forward to our culture. We're living a whole kind of other illusion, and I'll underscore two. One is that our constitution, our laws, our republic is sufficient to ensure justice, wholeness, and health. That's wrong. You know, our great founding father, John Adams, penned, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Point is, is this. You can have all the laws on, on planet Earth, and we have more laws than ever before. But if you, have a, if you have broken men and women, it just doesn't work, okay? We, we need right relationship with God. We need to be healed in the most fundamental way from the inside out. In other words, there's not gonna be any ultimate peace and justice and wholeness on planet Earth until Jesus is the king of an individual's heart and ultimately ruling on planet Earth. I mean, what, what happens if a culture loses its conscience? You know, the Bible says righteousness makes a nation great, but sin diminishes any people. So Jesus is saying, look, continue in my word. Okay, because as, as great as our nation and other nations are, th that's fantastic. The, the core problem is broken relationship. And I came to bring true freedom. And it all starts at the cross. The other illusion is driven by God replacements or what we call idols that we look to deliver what only God can in our life. So what do you mean? Today, depression and suicide is skyrocketing. And there are many factors, but one is that our culture promotes a performance-based identity. You have technology and social media uh, has a whole generation actually comparing each other's experiences and accomplishments and performances using their highlight reels with one another. And it leads to depression and it leads to hopelessness, okay? In history, this is the God Hephaestus, the God of accomplishment and performance. Um, some of you will remember years ago, how many of you remember that first Rocky movie out of curiosity? Could you raise your hand? I mean, we just dated ourselves big time, right? And Adrian asked Rocky, why it's so important for you, Rocky, to go the distance in the boxing match? And Rocky said, then I'll know that I'm not a bum, okay? So in other words, it's like, hey man, I got a performance-based identity and I got a work-oriented identity and I need to go, the, I just, I don't have to win, but I need to go the distance, and I need to go to this for a sense of like my own identity, who I am. And if I don't, it's like conclusion, I'm a stinking bum. Or in the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters explains why he worked so hard at running the 100-yard dash for the Olympics. And he says that when each race begins, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Ouch! 10 lonely seconds to justify your existence. Okay, well, that's, that's really putting yourself in the box. If you are looking for, 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 for performance, your work, 
to be the basis of your identity, you are living in illusion that ultimately is going to lead to terrible disillusionment. And, you know, an idol biblically is simply a God replacement. So it may be we're looking for work or we're looking for beauty, if we're looking for materialism, these things to give us what only God can deliver in our life, which is wholeness and peace and real identity in him. If performance is our idol, it's going to abandon us, even mock us, because we age. You know, theologian Thomas Odin writes, suppose my God is sex or my physical health or the Democratic Party. If I experience any of these under great threat, then I feel myself shaken to the depths. Guilt becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite values. Suppose I value my ability to teach and communicate clearly. If clear communication has become an absolute value for me, a center of value that makes all my other values valuable, then if I, failing in teaching well, I am stricken with neurotic guilt. Bitterness becomes neurotically intensified when someone or something stands between me and something that is my ultimate value. Well, listen, as believers, our ultimate value is our Heavenly Father in the Messiah and who we are in Him. Kind of hear another big amen to that. So the point is, is that the Lord made us to have our identity, our identity in our Heavenly Father's eyes, where we're loved, forgiven, empowered, graced, purpose. It's not a performance-based identity. It is a relationship-based identity and it's based upon what Jesus has accomplished for us. So truth sets you free from the illusion and disillusionment of life. Secondly, hey, Jesus came to make us right with God. But it's the Heavenly Father who trains us in righteousness. And I really wanted to actually note this last week, so I want to kind of jump back to some ideas we were developing last week, how we have the most greatest heavenly father who's innately good. But I have to say this point right here is one that I have to return to on a consistent basis, that Jesus came, bridged the gap between God and man, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. He came to make us right, but it's our heavenly father that trains us in righteousness. You guys, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12 real quick. Um, what does that mean? Hebrews chapter 12. Hey, check out with me the latter part of verse 1. And if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. I'll, I'll just read it. Hebrews chapter 12, latter part of verse 1. Check this out. What is this idea our Heavenly Father trains us in righteousness? What does that really mean? Well, the Scripture says, let us run with endurance. Okay, so this faith that we have is likened to a run. It's not a sprint. Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, verse 2, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, big idea. Whoa, check this out. Um, Jesus, despite, watch this, the shame, despite the shame, despite ultimately being treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history. Okay, despite the shame of the cross, he endured it. It's like he, he kept his eyes on the heavenly father. This was the will of the father. He came to do the will of the father. I and the father are one. So despite the stinking, terrible circumstances 
of the cross. I mean, it doesn't get worse than that. There's physical realities, but more than that, separation from the Heavenly Father. He actually endured, and it ends up bringing the greatest healing to man. So Jesus, like, we've talked about this billions of times, but it's so worth repeating, walks into Jerusalem knowing full well what's going to take place, lays his life down, does not run away, but endures the shame of the cross, becomes sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. This terrible pain and shame ends up resulting in the greatest healing ever known to man. Can I hear a big amen to that? And the Father, the Father has Jesus at his right hand. It's a demonstration that in fact, he's the king. And he's at the right hand, and he's coming again, which let me just give a little side note, which tells us that the heavenly father has always had his eyes on Israel because Jesus is coming back to Paris. No, just kidding. He's coming back to Jerusalem. But getting back to the point, oh my goodness gracious, he didn't give up. And Hebrews 12, 11 identifies it's the Father who trains us. So here's the point. In order to be trained, watch this. The point of Hebrews is that Jesus came to bridge the gap between God and man to make us right with God. But following Jesus means that we don't give up as well. And as we don't give up, then the Father is able to train us in righteousness, love, for example, justice, compassion, purity. I mentioned this before, as one great coach said, my job as a coach is to make these young men do what they don't want to do in order to become the men they always wanted to be. And I just want to tell you, look, we have the greatest heavenly father. Can I hear an amen to that? And what he's saying is, I don't, don't give up. Persevere, persevere, persevere. Just keep your eyes on Jesus who kept his eyes on me. I mean, you want to be encouraged and whatever's going on in your life, keep your eyes on me. Okay, Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus who kept his eyes on me. I mean, Jesus like walking into Jerusalem, enduring the greatest pain, shame there ever could be, but it brought healing. It brought something redemptive. There was resurrection. Jesus is now at the right hand. He's coming back. And so keep pedaling. Never give up. Okay, as you do, then the Father is able to train you. But if you give up, he can't train you in growth as he has purposed you to experience. So therefore, hey, a truth that sets us free is Jesus came to make us right with God, but it's the Heavenly Father who actually trains us in that righteousness. Can I hear another amen to that? I love that. Hey, lastly, what's the truth that sets us free? This is such an important one. It's a beautiful one. Don't get thrown off by it. And when you first read it, it's actually repentance. And repentance is a gift that actually remakes and restores and repairs and renews and revives. Uh, so let me ask you, how does that strike you? You know, I think sometimes when we hear the term repent, um, kind of has this negative connotation, you know, maybe speaks in some way of browbeating or being morally superior, you know, like, uh, kind of vibe to another person, you, know, you got to repent, you know. Let me, let me put it in perspective, okay? Um, I'm a white guy. Have you noticed that? I am white. I did not choose to be white. Truth is, I would have done everything I possibly could to be in earth, wind, and fire when I was 14 years of age. I'm not kidding. 
Okay, so I'm a white human being who lives, grew up in Southern California, and my dad, by the grace of God, you know, grew up in the coal mines of Kentucky and happened to be a president of a, a big corp, you know, corporation in Los Angeles. And while he was very moderate and drove his Toyota and stuff, I mean, I grew up in a very privileged, in a very privileged, I did. But, um, hey, uh, I say all of that because I'm a stinking sinner and need to repent. And I needed to repent when I was 15, which means to change the way you think about who Jesus is, brace him as Lord and Savior, that leads to a lifestyle change. And furthermore, just making a point, I still need to repent on a consistent basis. Okay, and say, well, what is it? Um, really important we identify it. For one, there are no alternatives for real change outside of repentance. None. The genuine change the Lord wants to bring in your life is impossible without repentance. We'll talk about what it is. And while the Lord wants to reach the entire world, it could be said the Father first wants to reach us, okay? It involves repentance, and repentance is going to be necessary to finishing well. The word technically means to change your mind. That leads to a change in your life. So Jesus began actually his ministry crying, repent, change the way you think, that leads to a lifestyle change. But repentance actually also means returning to the Lord. So watch this. Repentance jumpstarts a revolution in your life because the term conversion could be translated revolution. brings a revolution. And every genuine believer in coming to Christ repented from their sins, turned from a self-centered life to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. But repentance is also returning. So let me try to illustrate this. Like, not too long ago, I was on a boat with a friend, and they loved to sail. And I've never really sailed, a, been behind a wheel of a sailboat. So we were out there in Long Beach and off the coast. And so they said, Greg, come on, you want you give it a shot? And you give me some tips. And, to, and I'm going to blow all the terminology. I don't know. But I'm watching the top of the sails and, and trying to kind of keep it in this balance to, to ensure, keep it in this alignment to ensure that we were catching the wind and it was awakening the sails. Phew, okay, I got through that. Okay, so anyways, right? So I'm just like, and, and I was just constant adjustment and realignment, 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 realignment. And, and they were saying, hey, Greg, you're doing a great job. I mean, you know, realignment, you know, realignment. And then we capsized. No, I'm just kidding. So realignment, realignment. So it was, okay, I kind of got it, yeah. And it just, I'm telling you, it was like, it was just this consistent management of the steering wheel. Watch. Repentance is a little bit like that. And it's akin to being filled with the Spirit. And the, the Spirit, like a wind. And the idea of being filled with the Spirit, you could think of it like filling the uh, sails of a boat, right? And it involves realignment, realignment, realignment. So that I'm under the control of the Holy Spirit. That involves repentance. I need to realign, realign, realign. Jesus speaking to the churches in Revelation, seven of them, six out of the seven, he calls them, watch, realign, 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 repent, return to me, get in right alignment with me to ensure the wind is filling your sails, so to speak. You guys, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I want to show you something here. The Bible speaks of repentance in two different ways, actually. There is a repentance that's sorrowful for error or sin. 
but it doesn't go any further. And then there's godly repentance, godly sorrow that leads to change, okay? And this is important to know. So look here in verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Pause there for a second. I need to retract because I didn't say it properly. There's, there's a couple different types of sorrow, right? I, I can, I'm, 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 you know, prisons are, are, are filled with individuals, I've been told. I don't have firsthand knowledge of this, but I've been told that are, that are sorry they got caught, right? Because they're in prison. Now, whether or not it's a sorrow that actually changes the way they think, that therefore they wouldn't repeat their error, you know, God only knows. But he's making this distinction, like, man, I, you know, I recognize, like, or let's get back to the boat. Like, I recognize I'm not in right alignment. Uh, I recognize it, and I'm, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm bummed about that condition, but it's possible not to do anything about it. So there is a, there is a, a sorrow that he says here in verse 9, you know, you know, Let's read this again. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. It's just energy, but it doesn't take you anywhere. And he says, for this, observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, and, and what he does here, we don't have time to unpack this, but in verse 11, he identifies seven positive actions that result when there's genuine repentance at play. And the first one is actually diligence, or it, in, it could be actually translated speed. It's a very interesting word in the Greek. Speed, we get our word speedo from it. But speed, and, and this means that when there's godly sorrow, rationalizations for why we would sin or compromise or cut out. Like one might be, hey, I mean, you know, I'll just do this just this once, I can handle it. Well, when there's been genuine repentance, we're not thinking in such terms. We're cutting out that type of rationalization or I'll hide, I'll cover it, no one will know or everybody else is doing it or, you know, it can't be wrong, it feels so right, I just do it and then I'll ask God to forgive me. No, when there's genuine repentance and change, all of those rationalizations are cut out because there's been a genuine change in mind. And the depth of my repentance is gonna determine the depth of revival in my life. Um, and interestingly, repentance is something, it's a gift. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Realignment, realignment, realignment. Can I hear an amen to that? Realign, all right? Being honest with God. And it, it's only, it, only humans can repent. And the Bible tells us, Luke 15, 10, the angels rejoice when they see this realignment. In Acts chapter 11, the church in Jerusalem rejoiced when they saw non-Jews repenting, repentance that leads to life. In Acts chapter 3, verse 18 through 21, Jesus is identified, has actually not returned yet because there needs to be more individuals to repent, specifically our Jewish friends, because in 
Before the world sees Jesus return, Jerusalem needs to return to him. Now look at this verse up here in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. We have it on the screen. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to, let's say the next word, you guys, repent, because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, he'll bring wholeness and justice by the man whom he ordained, and he's given assurance of this to, to, to all by raising him from the dead. Look, look up here for a second. Let's cut to the quick, okay? Um, we all need the Lord. Okay? I mean, in order to have salvation and forgiveness, you have to be a sinner. So are you a sinner? I am a sinner. We're all sinners. And we've been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. It is a process. And repentance is critical to that. He's worked in us a desire to honor and please him. We need to work it out. Now, we live in a time, we live in a world for which we are the counterculture to a culture that's breaking down. You know, and it's like Jesus said, there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way. Many go that way. So on one hand, when we look at culture, okay, with compassion and empathy, we look at culture and it's, we see breakdown. Remember that idea like fell asleep in 62, woke up in 2020. It's like, whoa, are you guys tracking with me on this, right? It's like, whoa. Okay, so here's the thing. Should we expect anything else? Should we expect anything else from individuals who have yet to experience the love and the truth that sets people free, that brings the potential that God has purposed for our lives to experience. No, actually, we shouldn't. The point is, is that we have this radical breakdown and it's getting worse and worse and worse in our culture. Should we expect anything other from individuals who have yet to repent by the grace of God like we have and continue to, because we need to continue to repent beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. So just cutting through the quick with hearts of compassion, love, and empathy for our generation, let's remember what Paul said in this scripture. Hey, God commands the world to repent. And it should not surprise us when we see radical polarization because the great need the world has is Jesus. If you continue in my word, You'll know the truth. The truth shall set you free. And it's a love rescue. And sin is no friend to anyone. And I, I won't harp on this. It's not a harping, but it's just no friend of anyone. You know, I see the polarization. It just breaks my heart. I really believe there's another party in the room trying to play us all, and that's the devil himself. I really believe that. There's a darkness. There's a darkness, an increasing darkness. But sin, sin, compromise. Make, make, help us, Lord, cut it all out desensitizes, numbs, dumbs, and destroys. It just numbs, dumbs, and destroys people. You know, I, I'll never forget my beautiful 16-year-old son, firstborn son, his name's Greg Denham. He's number two, new and improved. But I got a grandson, same name. Anyways, um, I'm really proud of these guys. So my son, big, big, big kid, 6'3". He's, he's just had four, like, you know, wisdom teeth extracted, right? So his mom is driving home and I'm just, I, I, I come on, I'm just concerned how he's going to be. And, and he is, he's this beautiful kid, blonde hair. And I see Stephanie turning the corner and my, my, son, my son is in the car and he's kind of leaning a little bit. It's beautiful, gorgeous. Oh, there he is. Okay, thank God he's alive. No crazy allergic reactions. You know, I'm just, okay. So I kid you not. I open the door and I'm just trying to assess, 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 assess. I open the door and he goes, 
He goes, Dad, he looks at me, Dad, I, I, I like laughing gas, Dad. That's what he says to me. I like laughing gas. And I'm just thinking, just wait until you wake up. You know, I'm just thinking, I, I know. I know you do, son. Come on. I know you like. That's what he said to me. I don't even know if they give whatever they give. But that's what he said. You know, so I, I'm sure he had anxiety going to that. And he is halfway conscious. And he's thinking, okay, it's over. But I, but I knew he was numbed. I knew he was numbed. He was kind of dumbed down a little bit. And so, man, I got to get the ice on and so forth and so on. The point is, he's going to awake. And when he awakes, there's going to be pain. Can you, can, can you see the need for everyone to repent? Turn from sin to the Savior because it's in truth. The truth shall set us free. And Jesus is the truth.